welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford, and this time in studio is Tim McIntosh, where they swapped seats for the week. Well, David, David, exactly. how is my connection? Oh, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little distant I don't recognize there. recognize voice without like a laundromat in the back or a saw, <laughs> right. an electric saw. Like, we need some sound effects, so I know it's really you. <laughs> A cat. A cat. Yeah. Was that a cat? Was that you that had the cat in the background recently? No, that was... Did we figure out who that was? God. It wasn't that was me. totally me. Karis and okay. I are cracking up laughing, watching all y'all try to figure out who it was. That was me. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for your I thanks for letting lady. us all know. <laughs> solving our problem for us. Hey, as I was driving up <laughs> well, here... no one asked. Hey, you guys, as I was driving up here, I just got into the Searcy office 30... I mean, five minutes ago, but about 30 minutes ago on my drive... I passed an exit, and on the exit, it said Belmont Abbey College this way. Did you did you follow the sign? I did not follow the sign. Did you see the gigantic billboard that says Belmont Abbey College, top 10 colleges in the U.S., according to the no. U.S. News and World Report? They've got them going no. both directions on I-85, so you can't miss it. How did I miss that? You, know, yeah, you missed it. <laughs> you know, I just want to say, it's like, I'm not going to confirm or deny whether or not we actually did this, but it's like we prepared this segue. It because, is like that. Because it just so happens that Belmont Abbey College is sponsoring this episode of Close Reads. David, no. And I was on Belmont Abbey's campus last night. Really? What, what were you doing there? I might have been retrieving my firstborn child. Mm. I see this coming. little thing that you might call Easter break. Uh, I, I might call it that. In fact, <laughs> I think I shall. Um, Belmont Abbey College is sponsoring this episode of Close Reads, and they have a new honors college at Belmont Abbey College. You can learn more about this by going to belmontabbey.edu. Um, and I thought, Angelina, instead of, you know, <laughs> they might not like this, but I thought instead of uh, reading the traditional copy that is often read in an ad read, I thought, why don't we let Angelina Stanford, whose son is the actual tour guide yes, for the is. tours, why don't we let that person Tell our listeners a little bit about you don't know how much Abbey College like, is hand awesome. Hand the mic to him right now and just put him on the spot. Like, give your tour guide speech. Go. <laughs> and then over here, yeah, there are the dorms. And here's the dining hall. So Belmont here's Abbey College. Where we drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> it is a great liberal arts college. They do have this new honors college if you are interested in, in that sort of thing. And again, it is BelmontAbbey.edu. Angelina, what are two of your favorite things about Belmont Abbey College that you have? Discover awesome why your son has been there. Okay, so here's here's one. Um, as an as an English degreed person myself, I like have this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This like weird ambivalence about English programs in the country because it's so hit or miss, right? Like you might have an amazing professor, and then you might have a string of just the most horrific. We want to gut Western civilization literature teachers, right? We're going to set these books on fire and dance in the ashes. Those teachers, <laughs> right? Uh, and so you know, I get nervous when my my children take English classes somewhere else. But the English classes at Belmont Abbey have been so fantastic. Mm. Um, and my son has really enjoyed them and I've enjoyed listening to him talk about them. And it's, it's very, uh, you know, traditional and, and reading in the canon and traditional mm. interpretations, not a big political ideology with professors who truly love the books. And so, um, he's, he's quite enjoying those classes and blossoming, uh, and just, you know, I, I can't ask for much more than for him to come back and talk to me about the books he's reading and just talk about how he loves them. So uh, that's, that's high praise for me. In fact, he just, he just switched his major to English ah, because he loves them so much. So um, what was he studying before Angelina? He was in psychology and decided actually, actually 
Okay, you, you're only going to know how excited this makes. He actually told me he thought he could understand the human condition better through the study of literature. Wow. Hey, that means he's had some good professors. <laughs> well, that's what I think too, right? So, uh, so you know, anybody considering uh, the Great Books program at Belmont Abbey, which is a new program, I can say that the literature classes, I from everything that I know about them, talking to, to Eli and, and to also his friends who are also English majors. Um, I haven't heard anything bad, you know, I, I, all around, it seems to be just a really high quality uh, literature program. Well, I have to say when we got the request or the, you know, start communicating with them, we were thinking, well, this is kind of exactly the sort of program that we want to be associated with. So we're excited to, that they've, they're willing to support this show and kind of partner with us and make this sort of thing possible. What is your favorite thing or one thing you were, you said you were on campus last night. What is one thing you love about the campus? I've said this before, but I love that it's an actual monastery. I just, mm. I love that. I love that for so many reasons, the whole medieval thing, you know, because the school is <laughs> yeah. very liturgical and the monks are doing the hours right there on the campus and there's mass all the time. It's and a little predictable. It's a little bit on brand for you, Angelina. It is. It's a little <laughs> on brand. I know, uh, you know, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's awesome. I mean, it's awesome just to see monks walking around and monks teaching classes and, 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 uh, just, I just, I love it. I love the, I love the idea that somebody's full-time job is 24 hours a day praying for my child right there in the same mm. spot. And, and that mm. is a, you know, we, we've talked, everybody has talked about what college life is like in the United States, right? And <laughs> this could not be on like more on the other end of the spectrum where you're just rooted in a place that's very deliberately trying to bring that spiritual aspect to things and, and praying for the protection mm. of your children. And cause yeah. it's a terrifying thing to send your child off to college, yeah, it <laughs> especially is. these days. And I, I, I just, you know how I am. So I'm going to take great comfort from knowing there's a team of monks right there praying for my child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just well, love I, it. Again, people who want to learn more, want to learn more about the monks or the English department or just the campus in general, head over to belmontabbey.edu and you can set up a visit well, with Angelina's son, or you can um, <laughs> can just get some more information on the classes, tuition, all that kind of stuff at belmontabbey.edu. And, it, and it's not like super fussy about the monks because you can go in the bookstore and get bumper stickers and coffee mugs that say, got monks? <laughs> <laughs> it's not too serious about them. <laughs> you know. Speaking of, speaking of being not too serious. I was going to say it's close-reads-esque and it's humor about important things. <laughs> let's talk about True Grit because this is our third episode on True Grit and uh, we've got after this, we'll have one more episode before we do our Q and A, and we do a little bonus video or bonus episode on the movie, the Coen Brothers movie that came out in 2010. Yes, I'm looking 2010. forward to that. It's awesome. It's an awesome movie. Um, we're in part three here. Um, this is where uh, things start happening. We start having we start having some gunfights. Gun, pe- pe- guns blaze. People start dying. There's some fingers getting chopped off. Um, <laughs> okay, as the girl in the group, I yawned through that and was like, ooh, let's get back more to this subtext between Maddie and Lou of how she's tending to his woo. David is totally right. <laughs> so, yes, so you both got... enjoyed the bloodshed and I like the budding romance. Now... <laughs> <laughs> well, we got some interesting questions. Now, we have some listeners who, shocker, are not on Facebook. And so, therefore, they what? cannot... Is there a life outside of Facebook? <laughs> Apparently, they do not have access to the the group. And so we have a couple who sent some questions. And this is some questions from a listener named Penny and her husband. And I'm going to try to wrap some of their questions into the conversation today because there are some themes that are brought up in her questions that are um, that are central to this section that we're reading. Because this is a section that 
it does have lots of violence in it. And we could talk if you want about the violence. We can talk about, you know, if there's any themes or images that are embedded into that violence that is interesting. Um, but there's also the in-between scenes, you know, like when Maddie and um, Rooster are, are Rooster telling a lot of stories in this section. There's a lot of sitting and waiting and stories being told. And in those stories, there's a lot being revealed. There's, there's a lot of dialogue in between the violence. Um, <clears throat> there's, the, there's the fight between Labeef and Rooster where they're arguing about the war. And then there's roosters even after, or later on, he's kind of sort of mumbling in a drunken state in a way that seems like he's sort of haunted by his war experience. Yeah. So in this section, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of war haunted, if that is a fair way of putting it. And some of these questions that, that were sent in, I think are worth addressing since this person can't post them on Facebook. I thought I'd bring them up and give credit to, to Penny for, for doing that. So, I'm going to, I want to jump to one of those questions right away, if that's all right, to help focus, to have focus some of this, this conversation. And, and again, if you guys want to talk about something in the gunfights, the violence, the way the different characters are making choices in those moments, I'm happy to do that. Um, But this Penny asks, she, she points out this is a post-war book Mm -hmm. and that this is not the only post-war book that we have done. We've done other books after uh, several books after world war one. Um, where characters carried as, um, as Penny mentions in her question, a sort of type of scar that happens when you experience it a war, or you're in a sort of, you're in living in a culture that has experienced war. There's cultural scars even. Um, and she points out that the civil war obviously left, you know, many of the same scars on the American psyche, um, that, World War One, for example, left on Europe, the European psyche as a whole. You know, there, it, things were so divided, and uh, there was so much upheaval, and things changed so much. So, um, she wants to know: Do you think that the characters that we're seeing here are similar or car- carry any of the same scars that we saw in any of the other books? Any characters in any of the other books that we read? And I that's thought a that's great a great question. Yeah, that's some good comparison there. So, um, Tim. Because I'm looking at you and I can tell that you're thinking, <laughs> I am thinking you're thinking deeply about this. I'll let you take this question first and then I'll let Angelina see if there's um any, if she has any uh agreement or contradictions or she has a different character in mind. This is a hard one. Um I didn't ask these questions to Angelina and Tim. We did I didn't prep them on these ahead of time. Because what's the fun in that? that no, I don't just... David loves the long, awkward silences of the show <laughs> and we're <laughs> I'm trying to think of what are the what are the books that we have read that World War One kind of the, the time period after World War One is figured most prominently. Well, there's Brideshead. Brideshead for yeah. sure. Um, the war is in, there was an impact on on um, the Jaber Crow. Some of the characters in yeah. Jaber Crow, uh, to a certain extent, Howard's End, I think, but maybe not. The characters weren't in the war so much. No, Howard's End was written in nineteen. 19- right, it was right before yeah. World right before. War. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right. funny because my dad and I were talking about Howard's End, and I told him. I was like, oh yeah, it's written in the 1930s, and then he said, no, I think it's written in the 1910s. You know, of 1910, course. yeah, yeah, it was written in 1910. I was like, curse you, Dad, with your <laughs> your dictionary <laughs> knowledge. Um, <laughs> the book that immediately springs shout to my out, mind. Shout out to Tim's dad on the air. Yeah, right, right. I hope <laughs> I think Dad listens on occasion. <laughs> um, I the book that most readily springs to mind is one that we've talked about doing that we haven't read yet, which is. Uh, the Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, mm-hmm. which is very much about the generation after World War I 
um, Americans living in Paris and kind of what it felt like to be that lost generation mm-hmm. and being part of the lost generation was very much being part of World War One. Um, so similarities between the kind of survivors of the Civil War and survivors of World War One. One thing that springs to mind is they are um, devastating. Obviously, the the bloodshed and the carnage and the human damage on both wars was utterly devastating. So the Civil War is still the most, it claimed more American lives, I think, than all other wars combined. I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. So horrendously destructive. Also, it's fought with modern warfare, what we would consider kind of modern warfare. So um, I think the Gatling gun is used for the first time on a... Uh, I know it's not used for the first time by Americans in the Civil War, but I think it's the first major conflict where... So Gatling like in World War I technology. Yeah. Oh, definitely, because you have submarines, you've got, yeah, right. you've got new technology, definitely. And I, I remember speaking to my dad, I remember my dad saying something to the effect of this, that the Civil War was the first um, inhuman <clears throat> war fought by Americans. And I thought... Hmm. You know, I heard that as a young man, and I thought, "What does that mean? They're all inhuman." But yeah, yeah, I think Dad had a good. Point. There wasn't like a st- order and a structure to it. Yep, yeah, yep. and there wasn't um, like there wasn't Napoleon and you know Napoleon marching across a field against each other. And it was there was a little it was bit. It was total guess, war. It was it it was not just the combatants who were fighting. It was not just um, armed aristocrats, but it was the total culture of hmm. North America or of the United States. And in hmm. that sense, it was really the first modern war. Yeah, hmm. that's right. And so there's bound to be, um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's going to be those commonalities between the civil war and world war one, I, I think would have similar kind of effects upon the psyches of the characters living after them. Angelina, can you think of any specific instances where a, where something that we see lived out in a character in say, one of the earlier books that we read is also a similar thing being lived out in one of the characters in this book. Well, I, 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 it's hard for me to think of an incident. Um, um, They, they suffer with displacement, right? Not knowing where they fit Mm -hmm. in after afterwards. Um, One of the things that strikes me that's different here is that this is the West and um, in the American West, you end up in the unique situation where you've got the, you know, the outlaws of the South and the North together in the West. You don't have that necessarily in post-war England where you like got Germans walking around. They feel angsty next to the British. Like it's, it's, it's just England's scar or it's just France's scar, but this is, both huh. sides. And so for, uh, so I watched this. So they're intermingled together. They're, they're intermingled. That's why yeah. they keep, that's why you see rooster when he'll, he'll ask what side were you on? Like, that's a question. Yeah. That's not a question in post-World War One England. What side were you on? Right. But this is part of the scars mm-hmm. they're carrying around. And, you know, part of what America does and all countries do is they try to create a mythos to cope with what happened. And so we get the mythos of, of the West. But I remember watching this documentary a long time ago about Jesse James. And so I thought it was really interesting that they keep deliberately talking about the James brothers. Yeah. Because yep. the deal with the Jesse James was that in their minds, the war was still going on. Mm-hmm. And they were still fighting on the side of the South. And so they were attacking Yankee banks, right? Yep. Yankee railroad stations. So 
they did not perceive themselves as outlaws. They were still fighting this war. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about that. I love that this question came in this section because when they started mentioning the James brothers, I started thinking about all of that and looking about how, how much of that is still going on. How much of this, you know, Rooster, obviously a soldier who has not found his place in the world after that, like couldn't go back to just civilization. There's that scene where he talks about trying to be a restaurant owner. He couldn't, he couldn't go back to that life. He needs this kind of outlaw warrior. He's still, he's still fighting wars, right? Um, although he says what he you, switched sides and it's okay. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of? So there's a long tradition in, in Western literature and, and, and even in uh, Western movies, just West, you know, art based on the American, that kind of mythos of the American West, where the, the Confederate soldier becomes the Western hero or, or, uh, mm-hmm. anti-hero or, or, or the, the, Outlaw the Josie Wales is about that, the right? The main character. Yep. Um, the searchers is about, you know, John Wayne's character in the searchers, which is in my opinion, one of the five or six greatest American movies ever made is about this character who is haunted by his service in the war. And he was a Confederate captain or whatever. And he takes that and turns it, he turns, he takes the, the sort of displacement and the, and the hatred that came, that he came into during, you know, during the war and after the war and focuses it instead of, you know, for him, the war never ends, but he turns that, those energies, those negative energies towards the native Americans. Um, and that hatred that direction. And that's, you know, from Jesse James to Rooster Cogburn to Outlaw Josie Wells to Ethan and the Searchers, this is a long tradition mm-hmm. um, of the war of these Confederate soldiers, their wars, they don't go home and resettle, right? Right. You know, it's like the Confederate soldiers who ended up in Argentina or, or wherever it was. They, there's no, the home that was there is not the same that it was. Um, and so they end up moving west. They end up moving into the wilderness. They, it's almost like they become... Um, like Moses after he kills. So so in that sense, I think you can draw the connection to what we saw in bride's head that you have a generation of men who don't know who they are Hmm. or what it means to be a man because everything's so changed. Tim, what do you, do you think that rooster views him? She mentioned the idea of um, not knowing what it means to be a man. Do you sense that in rooster, there is a conflict about, um, either what it means to be a man or whether, whether he himself views himself as a hero or whether he sees himself as a good guy or a bad guy. I don't think he wonders, you know, what manhood is. I mean, I think he has, he probably has a little bit of an impoverished view, you know? Sure. Um, But I think he probably wonders sub, I think he has this subterranean worry about what he has done in his past. And I think it showed up, David, you kind of mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the little, when he's mumbling to himself when he's drunk and they're riding and he said, we did the best we could. We yeah, had revolvers we, yeah. and horses. That's all we had. And you're like, yeah. where's that coming from? Yeah. Rooster? We yeah. weren't talking about your guilty conscience, but it yeah. just kind of, um, in the draw, in the moment, the moment, the unconscious is spilling. Out. Yeah. Right. I thought well, that was it's very PTSD, about. you know, yeah. the self-medicating. Yeah. So he starts drinking, hmm. you know, after these things happen and, and now he's, now he's reliving war memories. That's very consistent with post-traumatic stress. Right. And Labeef is sort of the, he doesn't, he wasn't really a part of it. So for him, the legend lives, right? Yeah. Like he's he only involved. Yeah. It. He's only involved in the romance of the civil war. Well, I, I didn't want it to end. I was disappointed. And she's like, well, my daddy was happy to come home. He and, almost died. Like such a yeah. contrast, right? Yeah. And then by extension, Rooster in the same way, for him, the West is not a romance either. The war was not a romance and the West is not a romance. He's the beaten down. He doesn't look like the cowboy we think of, but Labeef for whom the war was a romance also takes for him. The West is a romance. 
like the way he dresses, the way he carries himself. Yeah, oh, yes. he's he's a dandy with those spurs yeah. on. The it's spurs like, are just kind of getting ridiculous. It, like you could see him being a 12-year-old kid living in Massachusetts who goes west and thinks, I'm going to be this Roy Rogers cowboy, yeah. right? right? Well, yes, and Rooster doesn't believe his stories. Oh, right. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I believed it the first 25 times I heard it. So there's this romantic kind of legend myth that Labeef is in. And so then we, the first time we see him in a gunfight, of course, there's all these questions being raised. Why does he blow it? <laughs> you know, he has his reasons. Rooster has his reasons. Maddie takes Labeef's side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yep. there's a lot of questions raised about who is this guy really who, <clears throat> you know, pertains to be. Do you guys think that Labeef is... Um exaggerating his own prowess i was i was thinking about that when i was reading that this yeah. reading this morning i was reading that section i was trying to figure out if 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 it seems like he is making more of himself what do, what do you think i i kind of think that he is there's this sort of juxtaposition of his i think he's described as baby-faced or something like baby-faced early mm -hmm. on when we first meet him i mean he's a very good-looking guy yeah and we also I, at least I got the impression somewhere, maybe it's by Matt Damon playing the character, <laughs> um, that he, he's not, his face is not weathered the way that I think Cogburn's face has been described as, you know, he's, he's lived a hard life and it's taken a toll on his face. Yeah. Well, he's so not that makes me wonder. All, he? Yeah, he's not scarred up. And it makes me just think, man, you couldn't have, I just don't know that you could be in the amount of um, hard living and gunfights that Labeef has supposedly been in and come out of it unscathed and come out of it, you know, <laughs> having that kind of face. I think, it, yeah, I think he'd have more crow's feet or wrinkles or scars. Yeah. You know what else is interesting as you're talking, huh. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, how often uh, in, in the ride over to the, to the dugout, um, Labeef and Rooster were contrasted. Rooster's decisions were based on experience and in the moment necessity. And Labeef was always like, well, that's not how we did it in the Rangers. In the Rangers, we had a rule. <laughs> yeah. It's very like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so Boy Scout and he's quoting the rule, but it doesn't, doesn't have the ring of experience. Like, let's not walk into that. That's an ambush. We're going to die. It's like the, the Rangers have a rule. We never sleep where we eat and, you know, stuff like that. I was just thinking of that, Angelina. And I think what's interesting about that is he points out that the rangers don't eat where they have their fire but he doesn't he did not object when they right. were constructing the camp and he did nothing about it before settling down for his sleep so i almost took that that you know the rangers don't uh we don't we don't sleep where we uh create our fire i almost took that as him kind of running it past rooster and saying uh, are we going to be okay if we do this? Because I don't have enough experience to say whether or not. Oh we yeah, are. yeah, yeah. yeah you know? he, he definitely captured for all his power struggle at the beginning. We're seeing none of that now. He he bows to Rooster. He bows to Maddie. Right? Mm. No, she can yeah. stay. She's earned. She's earned her spurs. That kind of thing. And <laughs> and so there, we see so many tensions and conflicts. And so in this section, I picked up much more of the tension between the Rangers and the Marshals. Um, and all and, and competing codes of honor, right? So Maddie's code of honor is that she hears the dying request of a man and is going to doggone make sure that happens, right? That's important yeah. to her. Even though he's an outlaw, you honor a dead man's last wish. That, that's important to her. That's not so important to Rooster. However, she points out that even though he didn't want to honor the dead man's wishes, and he was more than happy to kind of rip him off, that he did not touch a any of that loot of the train passengers, right? So he's got 
He's got a code of honor too. And a few people brought up Robin Hood, that idea on, on the Facebook page, which is great because I think we see that a lot in this section. Rooster seems very deliberately to be only robbing certain people and not touching other people, right? So there's no honor among thieves. You're a, you know, you're a thief, then whatever happens to you happens to you. That's on you, right? Um, and I don't have to honor any promises to you, but innocent passengers on a train get robbed well they they deserve to get their stuff back i'm not going to rob them hmm. Hmm. you know one thing going back to your question earlier david like similar or the question from what's her name again um penny, penny. Yeah. similarities between the civil war and or post-civil war survivors and world war one survivors is um that honor code is it's really strong uh, before the Civil War, it's really strong before World War One, and we start to see it begin to disintegrate after both wars. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's it just a an honor code. Honor codes have it, it is a major organizational motif across both Western and Eastern civilization. Like the samurai in the East, it's very much an honor code. Um, <coughs> what is an honor code? Sorry about honor all the coughing. Are you are you getting is it do you guys, it's just allergies? Is it because You're of allergic pollen? To Tim. <laughs> yeah, that's all the pine pollen. So I'm just I, since we're in the same we're on the same line right now, so I can't mute myself oh, like I normally I would because you're talking right now. Yeah. So I'm just gonna apologize for interrupting. I this. forgot about the pollen and yeah. then I came back and yeah, it's I rough. saw my mom's car and it's just dusted in yellow. <laughs> and I just thought, oh yeah, this is something about Atlanta and maybe just like the southeast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had forgotten about it. And I don't miss it. There are many and it snowed twice Not this it. week. So we have snow-covered pollen at my house, which is Oh, super how bizarre. Weird. Super weird. <laughs> my body doesn't know what to do. <laughs> anyway, continue your yeah, lovely anyway. thought. Yeah, I apologize. An honor, an honor code is something that it is hard to operate it in, um, as an individual. An honor code is very much contingent on having a community hmm. that also both recognizes and practices the code. Hmm. Um, so when that begins to break down after both of these wars, that's another thing that makes these men, men especially, these former soldiers, feel like they're a little bit lost. Where exactly do I go? If, if, I, if, I'm not, if I'm no longer surrounded, if I no longer have access to this kind of unspoken internal ruling of my heart, um, I, it's another evidence that I am alone. I, even my ethical self is kind of unmoored. Hmm. So, okay. One of the things that Penny mentions in a follow-up question is she mentions that we're going to discuss how serving under a bru brutal guerrilla commander might have molded Cogburn and his subsequent actions. And so his, his moral, yeah, his moral self, um, and the book describes him as a deeply broken character, obviously. So, um, yeah, obviously, serving in that sort of a setting would, yeah, generate or cultivate a person who is deeply broken. Um, and are there any ways that we're seeing that sort of the results of that sort of service or serving under someone like Quantrill as part of the Quantrill Raiders? Are we where are we seeing that show up in his character? And I guess that's the question that Penny's asking there. Angelina, I'll, I'll turn this one to you. Do, you. do you see anything like where serving under a person like that seems to be, obviously it's haunting him, but are there any ways that it's showing up in his actions? Well, I would, I would think that 
so the Civil War starts off with a lot of romanticism. You know, Mark Twain famously said that Sir Walter Scott, Scott was to blame for the Civil War, right? Like he thought mm-hmm. this romantic notion of what things are like, as opposed to the reality of the battlefield had and perhaps encourage people to run headlong into some honor battle, right? Not really fully grasping what they were going to encounter. Right. So, so what you yeah. end up with is just this, hor- you know, horrific, horrific situation, terrible conditions, people's, you know, feet rotting off, basically like trench warfare, very similar. Um, and, and then total warfare. And so I'm kind of, I kind of feel like we do see some of Rooster Cogburn's blurred lines, you know, that that could be explained by a lot of the blurriness of the civil war like you so for example the justification of total warfare is or was by general sherman that i love the south the worst thing for the south is for us to prolong this agony so the best thing to do for the south is to burn it to the ground because then we're going to end this war right so that's the kind of thinking we'll destroy everybody because that's the best thing for them and it's the same kind of mental process i think that allows rooster to feel like it's okay to torture a man to get the information you want or to kill him on sight because that's that's you know that's the bigger means as well now he can't steal anybody else's horses you know it's the same kind of mental process and i'm not making a judgment in this moment about whether or not those things are correct just just trying to show that it can become very muddied what's the right thing to do and and in the midst of this muddiness of because we go back to the court case in the earlier section and he's he's you know, testifying and they're giving him this hard time. And then he makes the comment to Maddie of instead of shooting him in the neck, I should have just shot him in the head. Then this would be over. This force of this justice system would be over and the man would be dead. And what do we find out in this section? He's escaped. So we have again, in a barrel. yeah, we have again, very Hobbit esque, right? <laughs> I kept thinking about that. I was like, this is Lord of the Hobbit right here. But so once again, counterpointed to all of this gray area that rooster lives in that we might be tempted to, this is not by the book. This is not okay. You can't just shoot an unarmed man. If he won't give you information counterpoint to that is over and over the failure of the system. He did the right thing. He brought the guy in alive. They got the trial. They got the conviction. He escaped, which is exactly what Maddie was worried about. Remember, I don't want you taking him to Texas. Who knows what can happen in Texas? He could escape. People (laughs) escape all the time. So, Turns out they escape in Arkansas too. Yeah. That's right. No, and right, exactly. So you just you have all of these competing tensions. I don't please I'm not about to answer the question, what's justice look like in this situation, right? It's such a mess, but it's also the mess that you see in the post-war world, combined with the you know, civilization yeah. issues in the West. You make a good point there because we have we saw some questions online, like, can you guys talk about what justice is and whether it, yeah, how it fits into this world. And you make a good point that that's sort of precisely what the gray area is that comes out of the civil war for some of these characters. You know, what is the just action to take? It's not always clear. There's a section in the Aeneid, I think it's book eight, maybe book nine, where um, Aeneid meets one of the kings of the Latin tribes. And he says that we are, you know, our tribe is descended of um, Saturn. We used to be a people, or we were a people who are governed by kind of like this, he describes it as this sort of internal code by our, by our hearts. But now we recognize that a time is coming in which we need to be governed by law. And the king is both sad about the loss of this former time when the people are ruled by their kind of internal girding, but he's also kind of recognizing um, 
we recognize you, Aeneas, as you know the great grandfather of the Roman law. That's at least how Aeneas, uh, excuse me, how Virgil has set up the book. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, but I think in that little glimpse that we used to be a people who were um, governed by our hearts, by this code within our hearts, but now we must become a people of law. I kind of think like I see that similar. That same thing is happening in the West. There used to be this code that that Rooster and his mates had about good guys and bad guys. Rooster has been part of a group that blurred that a little bit when he was in the Civil War, but nonetheless, there was this code. And now they're moving into this time, like Angelina said last week and the week before, where the West is being civilized. And along with being civilized comes the bureaucracy, comes the law, the heavy burden of the law. And what does bureaucracy look like in a place that is essentially lawless? Yeah, right. Right. But I just, I just think that's a really interesting pattern that you can see this all throughout mm -hmm. a kind of like developing countries. Um, Well, and like in the Aeneid, I mean, you just touched on this, but he is displaced because of a war. Yep. Oh yeah, that's exactly right. Displaced because of a war. He's moving. Same thing, same thing. He's actually even moving west, but he's moving, moving west and trying to create a new, a new, a new place, a civilization Uh in an uncivilized realm, we'll call it. But let's talk, one other question that Penny brings up that I think isn't, well, before we do that, we say we got one more, we got another partner we got to give hey, a shout out did, to. How did Duke do in the NCAA tournament this year? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Penny. <laughs> I'm sorry. Seamless segue, Tim, seamless. Actually, I forgot, when I, as soon as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, I forgot. Oh, wait, David's actually a Duke fan. I wasn't trying to... That wasn't, that wasn't right. No, the <laughs> ad is actually from Duke, so here we go. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, um... We talked about this last week, but our friends over at Duke University's uh, Arete Initiative are hosting their high school summer seminar in ethics, philosophy, and religion. The dates for this are July 9th through the 14th, and it's on Duke's beautiful campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching uh, the subject, the same subjects, ethics, philosophy, and religion in college. They're going to be using texts from lit, philosophy, and theology. And the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. I hope they can cover all of that in a week. Uh, Students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. Um, And again, like I said this week, this seminar is going to be co-taught by several Duke professors and instructors. It's open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. And Tim, do you remember what it costs? I do. I actually would like to say something about this because yes. I rec- I recommend after we did the ad last week. Yeah, I spoke to some friends of mine who've got kids who'd be interested in this, mm-hmm. and I said it's free. It's free, mm-hmm. and this is a shout out. To For, they also and they also give you. Do you stay in the dorm? And they give you meal cards. So it's it's. Not just you free. You kind of make money. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to feed your kids for a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, or watch them, take care of them, clean after them. Right. Uh, Emily Mayetta, who I, I put it to her and Mark, I was like, you guys should consider this for your kids. And it was like, it's free? Kind of like, what's the catch? Yeah, you yeah. know, what's the catch? So, David, what is the hey, catch? Hey, as far as I know, there's no catch. They just, I guess they get students to come learn about Duke and get in touch with great students. And so if you have great, maybe if you have a bad student, don't sign up. Uh, <laughs> but um, if you're interested in applying and emailing them and to ask them what the catch is, yeah. you can email John Rose uh, at john.rose at duke.edu for further details. And that's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E 
at duke.edu and applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th of 2018. So I did not mean to be casting a jaundiced eye at Duke. I (laughs) I don't feel like they have like some pernicious um, motive or anything. I just assume it's kind of like it's a, it's a recruiting effort. Like they recognize classical students are probably the best. Well, you know, we think so. We think so. Hey, well, in most cases, <laughs> can't speak for all of them. Okay, let's get back to it. So, hey, before we start a new topic, yeah. I, I had one more point I wanted to make about what, what we were saying. Um, do it. So, so this idea of what is the right thing to do in this situation, one of the things that we're seeing too is that it's easy sort of to debate what the right thing is to do in the abstract, but then when you're in the moment, it looks so different. And I so, so what we had there in the situation with the dugout, Rooster lays out a plan. Labeef says, wait a minute, are you going to shoot a man in the back? Right. So now, now it's this, I object to the plan. Oh, this yeah. is an unprincipled, dishonorable thing to do to ambush these guys and shoot them in the back. And Rooster's like, this is our best chance. You got to trust me on this. In the end, it's Labeef who fires the first shot. It's, He's the one who shoots the unarmed guy, right? Um, he does the dishonorable thing because in the moment he hears shots and he responds, right? Mm, yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's fit. The situations they are in are so like battle weary and not like law and order, right? It's just. Yeah. There, there's not a battlefield, you know, it, it's, it's guerrilla fighting. It there's is not, absolutely that. Not a battlefield where you move your troops here and you move your troops right. here and you cast artillery at each other. And there's no, there's not form and structure to this. You're fighting in a wilderness and you do the best you can. Like, like Rooster was saying in his drunken state, we yeah. did the best we could. Yeah. And you know, it's also sort of what Rooster was trying to tell Maddie earlier on, right? Like you don't know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. It's not as cut and dry. It's not going to be as easy as you think it's going to be to do what you want to do. This ain't no coon hunt. Right, exactly. It's not, you're not just trying to chase a raccoon into a tree and then yeah. the, the decision is you catch the raccoon, right? Right. You know, there's more going on there. Which brings us to um, another part of, the third part of, of Penny's question, which, I, which is interesting. She mentions, she brings up Maddie. She says that Maddie is a child and therefore, except that her father was affected by it, was not perhaps affected by the war in the same way as the other characters were, the older characters. Even Lebeef, who didn't fight for more than six months and really didn't see the real action, was affected by it more than Maddie was. And she mentions that since Portis is a humorist, perhaps Maddie's direct, unflinching perspective and her absolute sense of what right and wrong is, is a reflection of the next generation trying to right itself after a traumatic war, which is something we see in some of the characters in Brideshead, for example. Um, what do you think of that? What do you, uh, Say it again, David. So she says maybe Maddie's direct, unflinching perspective, as well as her sort of absolute sense of what right and wrong is, yeah. is a reflection of the next generation trying to right itself after a traumatic war, trying to create, I guess, standards and principles by, and, and sort of form by which you can actually live. That is such an interesting question. There's a book called The Metaphysical Club, which is about... Um, four men that were soldiers in the civil war the four men i hope i can remember them uh oliver wendell holmes uh oh i've heard about this i've heard this too yeah superb book actually henry henry james uh no william james and is lowell oliver wendell holmes yeah anyway uh, William James obviously was not an American in the war, so I, I overspoke it. I don't think all four of them were. Charles Peirce is the other one who was born like a half a generation after these. And I'm forgetting the other one. It'll come to me. 
but I shall do some Googling. I'm going to Google too. I finally thought I'll Google. <laughs> the Metaphysical Club is a wonderful book. It's kind of like a four-part biography about um, the birth of pragmatism. That's pragmatism with a capital P, which those of you who are interested in philosophy is kind of like the only indigenous philosophical school to come from the United States. And we've talked about on this show before, like how pragmatic Americans are. And it's fitting to me that our only kind of like real indigenous philosophical school. Oliver, is, Wend- Oliver Wendell Holmes, William James, Charles Sanders Pierce. And then there were a couple other people that were sort of in and out. It's spelled P-E-I-R-C-E. Yes. Purse. Yeah. Purse. Okay. But there's one other, anyway. Chauncey Wright, John Fisk, Francis Abbott, uh, Nicholas Sinjin Green, and Joseph Bangs Warner. And then Henry James apparently was yeah. in it. Um, like on the fringe. The or book, like so that. the book is from 2002 by Louis, Louis Menand, Menand, M E N A N D. It's a wonderful book. But part of what the pragmatists are doing is that they think that what. Oh, Dewey. Of, he also writes about Dewey. Dewey. That's the yeah. other one I was trying to think of. Um, Dewey, who was tremendously influential in the modern education, like views of yeah, modern education. Yeah. Another pragmatist. Um, pragmatist thought, what really at root, what philosophical problem got us into World War I? It was kind of like an overly rigid epistemology. It was an overly rigid the view of World what War truth I. is. I'm sorry, the Civil War. <laughs> um, they were seeing into the future. That's right. They were seeing into the future. So they're, they're pretty... Um, so their move is to kind of, it's to, in some way, they're attempting to humanize human knowing. They're attempting to humanize um, our epistemic stances. So, and that sounds really good, but they would say something like this. They would say, um, when the Ptolemaic view of the universe was true then, when it was in operation, because pragmatically speaking, it was useful. A sailor who was trying to cross the Atlantic, um, if he was trying to do that by the Ptolemaic system, could very easily, he could, he could navigate, let's say, the Mediterranean using the Ptolemaic system. It was practical. It was useful. So when Copernicus comes along, displaces the Ptolemaic view, well, then they would say, um, well, now the Copernican view is true. So the question is, well, what is that? So, but we would now say that the Ptolemaic view was false. And he would say, no, it was true then because it was useful then. Hmm. So it's this kind of making, um, it's making truth. It's moving it a little bit away from just a strict verification principle of mm-hmm. um, understanding, if that makes any sort of sense. So I think it's interesting that the reader brought up this kind of like, Maddie has this really cut and dry, black and white. Um, absolute sense of right and wrong. Absolutely her, well, That right. was her phrase. Which I, I think Pennies. temperamentally, I think that, so how do I say this? I think that the view that she has, has a lot more to do with her person and her character and her age than it has to do with the temper of the times. Because I think the temper of the times, maybe not immediately after the Civil War, but in the American kind of like political and philosophical circles, it's drifting away from what would have been viewed as a very black and white kind of like overly harsh view of truth that at least the pragmatist thought so the civil war actually might have resulted in 
a um, scattering rather than a coalescing. And so, yes, she, I so agree with that. Maddie is representative of maybe the opposite of what's actually happening to most people or right. to the culture at large. I think so. Okay. Yeah. But of course there'd be plenty of people maybe like Maddie who are maybe older than Maddie who still, who would have kind of doubled down on um, kind of this old, this older kind of epistemic stance. I'm sure there are plenty of people like mm-hmm. Maddie, but I think mm-hmm. I can right, think right, more right. in like elite circles, both theologically and philosophically. I'm not saying that pragmatism like carries the day and you know all American universities no they by no means do they but it becomes this kind of vibrant sub tradition within American letters and academia um that 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 makes um Americans stance toward mm, truth and verification a lot more pliable. Hmm. Angelina, you said you'd basically agree with that with that I- perspective on Maddie. Go ahead. Your yeah, I, I do. I think that what you see in post-war situations is um, uh, people kind of spiraling and asking the question, well, what good did our honor do? What did our honor code, code do? You know, it didn't keep us from getting into a war. It didn't, it didn't save right, us. It right, caused right. all this mess. And essentially, you become a cynic. Yes, you do. You become a cynic. So, so what happens here then is essentially you have the question of law versus force, Right codes versus force and what i mean it's force that's winning the day every single time in these encounters even mm. when the law wins in that earlier case it's the force of the hanging judge yeah and that's mm. contrasted to the bureaucrats who just want to muck everything up right uh, so if anything i think the pendulum swings not forever but for at least a little while with you know this is all bunk this code and this honor and it's force. And if you pay attention to Especially Maddie, in the wilderness in the West. For all that she has a code, she also uses force. How many times does she throw around her lawyer, right? I have a lawyer. My yeah. lawyer is going to come after you. My lawyers. So she also uses whatever force is at hand. But the interesting thing is, I think maybe it's because of her inexperience and her innocence. She trusts her force is yes. the structure, the, the law, the culture. Yes. She yes. believes in that enough that that's what she's going to wield. She wields it forcefully. There's like a deep irony in that, but she still has this innocence that she believes that in the end, that's what's going to overcome everything else. That's and true. Rooster and I'm so, has the experience that he's a cynic. He's the cynic about right, that. Right. And I'm so curious where her character is going to go. Is she going to change Rooster or is this experience going to change her? Yeah. Hmm. She does seem to have a little bit of distance and irony from her older narrator to her younger self. Uh, do you, do you, either of you see her, ha- is she changing so far in these few days of this adventure? Do you see her changing so far or, or her perspective as a narrator changing? That's a great question. I don't see her as changing that much yet. I don't either. And I find myself wondering what effect it will have on her, the death of the boy. You know, she says he was just barely older than me. That that was a real mirroring mm. moment, right? No, yeah. the other one, the nameless boy who came back to save Ned. Oh, and he got oh shot. yeah, yeah, yeah. The one, the one who it turns out he'd never been in any trouble before. Right. He's just a kid, and you hear about his relationship with his father, and then he somehow gets mixed up with the wrong crowd and doubt. That's a definite mirror and doubling of her own situation and of mm. the danger she's in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I that I love about this book is. It's this really intense, these intense scenarios and this intense quest, but then 
Portis is so good at dropping in these moments of like pathos and humor. So sometimes they'll have these moments of humor. And even as they're discussing difficult things or Labeef and, and Rooster are like at each other's throats, her perspective is humorous enough yeah. to lighten the mood. And sometimes you have these moments of pathos like that, where it's like this poor kid who got in the wrong crowd and next thing you know, he's dead. Um, mm-hmm. He's dead trying to save his friend. Yes, doing he, he an honorable thing. Away. Yeah. And like little things like that. It's that, that and in particular, I felt, did y'all feel, I feel like Charles Portis was connecting his innocence and inexperience with his death. He makes the mistake of coming back for his friend. When we see over and over, um, there's no honor among thieves. So mm-hmm. he tries to have honor and it kills him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, he, he has the, he has a sense of, um, there's a there's a there's a sort of romance about that right yes never leave a man behind yeah but it kills him and then of course we're told ned grabs the horse and and drives off without so much as a look of gratitude he doesn't even look back yeah for this kid who gave his life you know i just i feel all these super contrasts and Mm -hmm. not knowing exactly how it's going to be resolved but a lot of muddiness for me i I don't know that i can a lot of people are asking the question what is justice i don't know well you know (laughs) so that's a good like for this kid in particular he's in with a gang of outlaws who are doing evil things and he dies is that just or is is he came back to save his friends or you know maybe or it was is it on is the is it unjust that he dies there i mean that and that's where there's sort of a gray area central to the western story in general and and to the to the experience of of cult of create of carving civilization out of a rock as difficult as you know as 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 a wilderness as profoundly wild as the american west became you know there's i think that's one of the things that gets overlooked sometimes there are wildernesses all over the world that have gotten tamed Mm. um but there's something about the attempt to bring civilization to the American West that almost made it more wild. Like there is a sort of... How do you mean? Well, there's a sort of natural form to wilderness that um, man has to overcome to tame it. And in some ways, um, bringing, trying to bring civilization, even a sort of natural wildness that the Native Americans, for example, accepted. And they, they build their cultures to be in tune with. And we brought, well, you know, we'll, we'll just say the white man, the civilized, the civilized, quote, civilized white man in trying to bring their culture west had to, had to smash that to smithereens. Yeah. And in yes. doing so, it became, it didn't, over, it didn't suddenly become a place where civilization sprung up. It became a place where different wildernesses became at each other's throats. So it became a place where the, where the, the Confederate, the wounded Confederate soldier would go where, you know, uh, Mexican outlaws would cross the border to steal cattle where people who couldn't make a life in some other way would go. And it made, it didn't make it more civilized. It made it more wild because that natural form that was already there gets annihilated and it becomes. And so thus that's what cynicism is born out of. Yeah. And so it took a long, I mean, are we still, we, I don't even know if we still resolve that. And that's what Cormac McCarthy's a lot of his stuff is about like no country for old men. Have we 150 years later, have we st- is the have we resolved that that sort of central conflict that's at the heart of the American West? Gosh, he was that's saying, so good. That's such a good point. Like while you're talking, I'm thinking that the image of this is the railroad. 
which is why it's so interesting that the railroad keeps getting robbed, right? The railroad yeah. is yeah. the civilization. It is the thing that literally connects the East and West of this country. The transcontinental railroad, that was a huge moment in American history. And there's always those iconic scenes in a Western movie where they're blowing up the side of a mountain so the railroad can come through, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and they're so, blowing up, they're, and the buffaloes were killed because of the railroads. Yes. The oh man. They would right. sit in the windows. You can see the there's Remington paintings, these famous Western paintings. The hunters would sit in the windows and for nothing other than sport, they would just blow past these. They wouldn't do anything. Bang, 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 bang. Right. They would just let them rot in the sun. It was right. like it's a it's horrific. Civilization and like the natural so again, there's like there's the metaphor and I oh just I just annihilated your point. I just was the train that blew through you there, Angelina. The natural form, the natural structure of the wilderness, this, this, the, the buffaloes that the Indians were willing to, they built their, they built their yes. cultures around it. They bought into yes. it. They became a part of it. The, the hunters on those trains just blew right through it with no regard for it. Right. And so what I'm hearing you say is almost like, and this is a deep irony, the attempt to bring civilization was an act of violence. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to establish peace it's out of violence. In some ways. And always in literature, that never works, right? Always the story, the myths are when you try to bring peace from violence, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so something else that I'm thinking of, and this is just spinning off the top of my head. So you knowing all about Westerns and American literature can slap me around and tell me no. But what I'm thinking of is how very different the conquering of the wilderness in the British Isles looked to what you're having in, in the West, primarily uh, the way that, I mean, yes, there's warring clans and tribes and things, but ultimately it's a matter of intermarriage, missionaries, the acceptance of Christianity. I mean, you know, 500 years of Vikings destroying the British Isles, it was Christianity that ended the Vikings, right? Um, so this, it's almost like there's a more internal shift. I mean, they, they, they civilized the clans by missionaries coming in and building schools and classically educating the sons of the tribe, you know, the, the kings. And yeah, there's a speaking. famous sort of motif in American, the West, and in the stories in particular, you'll see it in different movies and things like that, where the cowboys and there's a real sort of disregard for the work of the missionaries. You have these Spanish missions set up all across the West, right? And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it was essentially racism or if it was cultural, like there's cultural differences between the, you know, the Americans and the Spanish, so to speak. But what the Mexican and Spanish missions were trying to do was sort of disregarded by the so-called Western heroes. Right. Like even John Wayne, like in the Western movies, they sort of look down on. They don't, on they the don't, mission. in the Westerns I've seen, the, the missions do not come across as oasises of civilization. No, you see, you know, interestingly, you see it primarily in, in at certain times in Roy Rogers and the Lone Ranger, which is really interesting to me. And I don't know if it's because they were created by Christian people or whatever, or because they came about much sort of later. Hmm. Um, but you'll see like the Lone Ranger, for example, he makes friends with monk, with um, like the people who run these, I guess they're monks who run these Spanish missions um, and Roy Rogers a little bit too. But in the, tradi- in the sort of quintessential stories we think of, there's not that sort of union. Like they're not trying to do, they're not, you never see them try. They're never locking arms and trying to do something together. Right. 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 At worst case, you've got somebody who'll protect the protect the mission. Like, like that's like best case. And then you have this motif running through the book too, and this is probably true of of all of the Western myths. Look at how intermarriage is portrayed. That's always an act of barbarism, not of civilization. Half breed that is an insult. They're they're you know, and this just she's so she's ugh. Maddie is so shocked to meet a civilized Indian. Right? Turns out she's Presbyterian. 
I'm a Presbyterian. Like that's a, that's a little bit of a oh, paradigm changer for her, right? Turns out there was a missionary. So that's a game changer. That's the first um, Indian we've seen in this book that's that's portrayed like, I don't know, what do I want to say? Non-threatening? Yeah. But it's because she's been, what, Christianized, Westernized? Yeah. At least in Maddie's eyes, she's... In Maddie's more, eyes, she's yes. She's sort of more of a person because she's a Presbyterian. Although I think in Maddie's eyes, anybody who's a Presbyterian is more of a person. No, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> you know, sure I, I true. Would, I'm kind of quiet over here because I'm thinking how much... Um, I wasn't letting you. No. <laughs> I, I'm going to stumble through something. Um, we People only change their minds basically for two reasons. Because they're forced to, <laughs> you know either like because you're meeting the potential or the reality of brute violence mm-hmm. or you change your mind because um, you look at something in a different way or um, all of your neighbors absorb a certain point of view that it just makes it kind of like practically impossible for you to not also absorb that view. But regardless, so if you change your mind volitionally or if you change your mind out of fear or intimidation from like brute violence either way it's violent it's it's never changing your mind like it does something violent to you whenever i have changed my mind over something substantial it was never fun it was That's never why it takes so long to convince someone yeah it does it takes so long it's why um, or why we are naturally inclined to plant our feet. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and I, I'm thinking about colleges. We were talking about Belmont Abbey, and Belmont Abbey College is probably not the sort of college that does this. But I know there's this certain kind of drift in academia away from any form of violence whatsoever. And anyone who, um, well, let me let me say let me back up and say. They're not just against the sort of violence that like the three of us would probably also oppose, but they're against this sort of like violence of one's changing one's mind. Like know? to to be challenged on something. To be challenged on to something. To disagree. Yeah. It seems like that is becoming this kind of worrisome thing that's causing people in academia to wring their hands that by making a forceful argument. Um, in an attempt to change one's mind that you're essentially kind of like doing the job of the imperialist. And I hope I'm not making a, a straw man out of their position. I would not, well, I don't I, want to do Trying that. to colonize. I think, I think what you're saying ties into something that I talk about a lot. I think, I think we're essentially saying the same thing, which is that um, wisdom only comes through suffering. And when we have a culture devoted to eliminating every type of suffering in the world, yeah. And 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 I'm not, I don't mean to say we shouldn't care for dying people. I don't mean that kind of thing. But like, we don't want any internal suffering. We don't want our students to have mental anguish by wrestling with books that ask hard questions and make us feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, we want to medicate. We want to. We just we have an entire culture that is suspicious of suffering, right? Yeah, yeah. Which isn't to say that I don't think you should administer medicine to people in physical pain in the hospital. That's not the point I'm right, trying right. to make, right? But there is a certain type of wisdom that can only be achieved through some sort of suffering and Tim's describing it as this violent act but I think it's the same thing we're saying right yeah I think so we're uncomfortable with wanting our students to be uncomfortable (laughs) but you have to have that moment of pain and suffering and doing violence to to you got to wrestle with your own soul you got to be like Jacob and right and and Jacob ends up 
he gets the wisdom, but he's also in pain. And cultures them like we have to do that as people. Yeah, the cultures themselves have to do that. Absolutely, and that's look, sort of in some ways what's happening in the West. Well, yeah. right, and so look what has happened. The more that we have refused to let any kind of internal suffering happen to us, which could bring about changed minds and paradigm shifts, the more we we refuse to allow that into the public arena, the more that we're having actual outbursts of physical violence, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're physically trying to make each other suffer to change minds. That's what's happening right now yeah. in the political venue because we're not we're not having the internal struggles. Hmm. So it's all become externalized. Hey, this all came from a Western novel about this girl that goes across to get revenge for her dad. <laughs> no, there's slow. Are you trying to there's steer so us back? No, I'm just saying. I mean, we should we should probably start trying to. We've gone for wanna, our time. We should probably start thinking about wrapping up. But I want to say one go. other thing on this subject. I I heard an interview with a guy named Mark Ripito, who's a very decorated um, weight trainer. He gets people. He basically makes people strong. By yeah, based on looking at you right now, looks like you've been listening <laughs> to some weight trainers. <laughs> Nah, that's just the thing. Wait, all you have to do is listen to a weight trainer? Game changer. <laughs> Game changer. Yeah, you didn't know that? He, Mark right. Ripito said, basically, like the formula for getting strong is very, very simple. You put more weight on the bar than you can lift, but just a little bit more than you can lift. So if you're, you know, if your maximum back squat is 200 pounds and you can lift that five times, then the next time you lift, you have to put 205 pounds on the bar and you have to fail trying. At some point, you're, gonna ha- you're going to fail trying to lift 205 pounds if you were just successful lifting 200 pounds. He said, there's just no way around it. Basically, um, as organisms, organisms, we respond to opposing stimulus and we develop the internal resources to either fail against that obstacle or to get stronger so that we can meet and oppose and overcome that obstacle. I mean, it's, it's really simple. And I, I listened to this interview by Mark Ripito and I thought, this is what education is. It's just putting five more pounds on the bar and a really good teacher knows what the right five pounds is to add. And a really good teacher also knows what the cat, what the class is capable of lifting at that moment. Or what the student is capable of lifting in that moment. But the notion that the student can get stronger, can get smarter, can become more skilled without failing is, it's madness. It's a strange sort of madness that a lot of people have imbibed, but there's just no way around it. My mom and dad, and I'm talking about my mom and dad because I'm in, I was in Atlanta before I came to North Carolina and my mom told me that we were all exchanging our kind of like horror stories of being in class and being so embarrassed because we failed. My mom told me that she was, I think she was in second grade and she got so nervous when she was in front of the class that she wet her pants, mm. you know? And yeah, she yeah. loves and you she, telling this story right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe we Shout out to Tim's mom. <laughs> A well, theoretical was, woman once told Tim. Yeah. <laughs> she said it in a loud voice and yeah, I don't know, David, maybe we could take it out. But well, she was in second grade. She was in second grade and she didn't seem to be the, li- the slightest bit embarrassed about it. Now, I remember for me, it was when... Oh, I can point to like a couple very specific things. Like you remember them, oh, right? Yeah. You yeah. remember them and nobody wants to go through them and no parent... But you definitely student. have to share yours now. Well, mine is, mine is not anything like my mom's. I just, 
the smartest girl in my class, Ann Lyon, who I'm sure is like a CEO or, you know, a PhD somewhere now. <laughs> she sat right in front of me in my first grade, Mrs. Grovenstein's class. And Mrs. Grovenstein. I like right- that you knew, you remember enough about a first grader to believe that she's now like a CEO of some company. But her dad was a surgeon. They went to my church. I was oh, okay. like, you know, okay. yeah. a high performing clan. <laughs> when Mrs. Grovenstein's um, assignments on the front board were completed, then you were supposed to turn your entire desk around to face the back, the back um, blackboard so you could see the assignments on, in the back of the room. So I'm sure that I was the slowest. I really think I was like the slowest kid in first grade. <laughs> Ann Lyon, the smartest kid in first grade, would turn around and for an hour well, after she had completed the front board assignments, we would just stare at each other because she had turned her desk around and I was still working through mine. And I remember like every minute that Ann Lyon was turned facing me, I was just like, oh, I'm just so dumb. <laughs> and yeah, she was just like the smart person was just looking at you. Yeah, like, glaring Glaring at, at you, like seeing through your soul. When I was a kid, we had a Thanksgiving. I was second grade Miss Stoddinger's class um and we had no third it had third second or third grade um we had one of those plays for oh no you know for your for your families and like everybody's there and they had set up a stage and and it was one of those things where you know the teachers when you're that young the teacher will sit in the front row and we had like the scene we're like at a Thanksgiving dinner sort of and I think I was playing William Bradford or Miles Standish or one of those yeah. figures. I guess I got one of the lead roles, apparently. Yeah. I'm gonna that's how I'm gonna tell it anyway. And um so I'm sitting in the front row and I forget my line. Oh no. Which of course I'm second grade. No one cares, right? And so then I look at the teacher and I remember like getting really scared and I look at her and she looks at me and she's very all encouraging and she whispers me the line. So she she just like yeah. says whatever yeah. she whispers it. And instead of like with confidence saying my line. I just whisper it <laughs> and everybody is just dying laughing. Right. And you're mortified. And I'm like more on the second grader mortified, but I was thinking about this. I feel like, you know, sometimes some people are just like, Nope, I'm never speaking in front of people ever again. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was in retrospect, you know, you, you fail enough times at something. And you know, if you have any gifting in it, I guess at all, then eventually it's going to help shape shape that and i feel like speaking in public probably i know i'm never going to whisper when someone with some whisper something to me right. again so. right yeah but i remember being just mortified and for like a couple of years i had like a random dream where i was speaking in front of someone and i would end up whispering the line and everyone's like what's that wait can't hear you can't hear you in the front row <laughs> hey do you know what the actor's nightmare is i mean this happens maybe this happens to you guys falling this- through the hole on the stage <laughs> no um the student's nightmare, of course, is like waking up, going to the test, and you like weren't prepared for it, and you didn't know there was a test or something like that. The actor's nightmare, I have had this so many times, is you're about to go on stage, and you realize you have memorized none of your lines. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I have it over and over and over. <clears throat> it's awful. Angelina, do you have a... Uh... A, a childhood like King of class. I was wondering if you were going to ask me that. I'm afraid I was the Ann Lyons of the. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. I completely believe um, that. It was a matter of intense pride to me, not only that I got the highest grade in the class, but also that I finished first. Mm. <laughs> I had to check both of those boxes to feel like a good day at school. But fortunately, as an adult, I have so many of those wet myself moments. So it all evens out. <laughs> Do you think that, were there any times, well, I mean, we're, we are far afield from the book right now. But, <laughs> I like this. I mean, oh, yeah, it's fine. The people, basically, this is the banter at the end of the show. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but, well, 
<laughs> Maybe we should give people permission to leave. Do you have any final thoughts on this book? Because we're, we've gone for an hour and 20 minutes. So. I love this book. That's my only final thought. I it's such a delight. Too. Is there something that either of you are looking for in any of our three major characters? Um, you know, we mentioned that it seems like maybe Maddie hasn't changed a lot. Um, and, and how is she going to change? But is there anything you're looking for in, um, and in particular, uh, you know, uh, Rooster or Le Beef as far as how their characters evolve or something you're just looking for as you go? Angelina, well, they I'll let switched. You do that first. They switched, right? Because now Rooster is the one that wants to leave Maddie behind. Are you behind. saying there was a reversal? There was a reversal. I actually what? wrote that word in my margin because, <laughs> you know, it's one of the things I love to look for. Yes, there's a reversal here. Where Labeef seems to, I mean, he, after the encounter where he, you know, beats, beats Maddie, now it's like she's earned his respect, right? And so he has not opposed her one time and instead mm. has opposed Rooster and said, no, she, she belongs to be here with us. She mm. deserves to be here. She's won her spurs. So it's not even a pity thing, but it's like a respect thing. His interaction with her, Maddie has changed drastically, but also has Roosters. I don't know if he's acting more paternal. I don't know what's happening there. But but he's he's changed. They have changed. I don't know where this is going, but this is what I'm noticing. I actually like how Libby, he says, oh, she's earned her spurs. She's fine to come along. And he's like, let's not talk about earning our spurs. I don't want to have no yes. more talk about earning spurs. Like this is That's like it's right. just sort of a nonsense concept to, to Rooster. Like, yeah, you know, earning your spurs is not this moment when all of a sudden you know how to do everything right. But earning your spurs is kind of this romantic honor code, Boy mm-hmm. Scout kind of thing. Yep. You're, you, you've got your badges. Right. No, exactly. You're, you're done. You're ready. You can move on. Tim, what are you looking for? I want to, I want to see if Maddie does change. I want to know. Um, yeah. I just want to see if LaBeef and Rooster change. My inclination is that we're not going to see Rooster change. We're just going to see more of him uncovered. Mm. You know, like, mm. I feel like He's such a, he's such a... We're going to get more of the heart of who he is. Yeah, exactly. Layers are going to peel away. Exactly. Because he's such a, he's built out from the beginning of the book to be so morally dubious. You know, we're not quite sure. You know, he's he's a drunk. He's been in all sorts of, you know, he's torturing people, putting their hands in the fire. Um, But I do, I my suspicion is that we're going to see more and more of his heart. And I do think that there's kind of like this golden heart underneath all of this just... So the more we peel away... Is he an onion or is he like a clementine? <laughs> you peel the layers away and eventually we're going to get to an onion or we're we going to get to a clementine. I think we're going to get to a clementine. Yeah, that's what I think too. Rooster, Rooster the clementine. Yeah. Clementine. Oh, you know, and he's got, the, he's got the one eye. And in literature, blindness always is a symbol and a metaphor, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if the one-eyed man ends up being the one who sees something, right? Has yeah. a revelation or something. You know, that hmm. tends to be how this kind of thing goes. All right. Well, I guess we'll call it a day. I think we, I think we gave the people enough. It was enough. a gritty day. It was a truly gritty day. It was a gritty day. <laughs> <laughs> well, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. We'll talk to you next time and enjoy True Grit. Bye.